Everybody okay in the second row there? Um, hey, great, great song to, uh, to tie into uh, what we're going to talk about this morning. How many of you all watched the uh, inauguration? Okay. Um, it, I don't know if you found this interesting. Did you all follow kind of the big hubbub about who would pray for uh, President Obama? Rick Warren, you know, uh, pastor at Saddleback, and everybody was, was, some people were kind of up in arms about him being the one that prayed, and then there, you know, the more, you know, the Christian side was going, well, what's he going to pray, you know, is he going to pray in Jesus' name or not, all that kind of stuff, and I found that, that whole news story somewhat interesting, I think it revealed something about what we think about prayer. Um, you know, everybody focused on first Rick Warren, and second of all, who he was going to pray in, whose name he was going to pray in. But nobody seemed really concerned or believed very much in what he prayed. Nobody ever talked about that. Nobody, you think about it, the media didn't really put a whole lot of credence in the actual prayer. You ever stop and think about that? They focused on Rick Warren and they focused on maybe how he was going to end it. But nobody really believed, right, that anything was going to happen in that prayer. I think that reveals something about betrays in our culture what we believe about prayer. You know, as a pastor, I get asked to pray at a lot of things, okay? Uh, sometimes commencement at UT Chattanooga, um, and, uh, you know, sometimes when you're in some sort of like the Rotary Club or some business association or something like that, and you're there, oh, pastor, can you say a quick prayer for us? It's really interesting to me. We always want a quick prayer, like it's, you know, it's a piece of the business, and yet it reveals something about what we are really doing. Uh, Eugene Peterson has this phrase that, that uh, do we realize when we are praying that we are conversing with the one who spoke all of creation into existence with a word and whose very voice can shatter the cedars of Lebanon? Look outside at some of these cedars. Are these cedars? I'm not a arborist. But whatever those trees are, God's voice could shatter them. And that do we realize that when we pray, when we pray that we are conversing with that one who spoke all of creation into being. I want to notice something else, and I I think I've done this too. Um, We pick up phrases in our prayer. When I first became a Christian, the thing that scared me to death was praying out loud. In fact, the first guy that discipled me, he asked me, what do you want to work on? And I was like, "Uh, praying out loud. I I just don't know what to say and what to do. And and we do this, right? Like We we pick up phrases that sound really good um, from other people. A universal one is, bless the hands that prepared this food. That's a really good one. Um, and, And we all do this. And I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to make fun of anybody's prayer, okay? Because I think we're all, hear this part, that we're all learning this language. How do we talk to God? But here's the phrase that ever since I was convicted of my unbelief or ignorance of the kingdom of God being amongst us, is the phrase, Lord, be with us. How many times have you heard that? Lord, would you just be with us as we gather for worship? Lord, would you just be with Tom or be with Sally or Julie or whatever? Would you be with them? 
And I don't know God's mind, but, but I, I wonder what he thinks about that. Because over and over again, as I look in the Gospels, he has promised to be with us. Did we forget that or did we miss that somewhere? I think we have. And it, and it shows up in our prayer. It, it shows up that we long, we long for God to be with us and, and maybe we think somewhere that he's not. I challenge you, if, if, if you're fond of that phrase, think of another way to say it. Maybe, God, I want to recognize your presence because I know you're here. But give me eyes to see you or ears to hear you today. Because he hasn't gone anywhere. That's one thing. This morning I want to talk about some of the things that we talked about last night. And if you could remember one thing about last night that I would like you to remember would be this. That Jesus' first sermon was, change your mind, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's here. Believe this good news. And that the resources of the king and the kingdom are available to each and every one of us as we call on his name. So that's where we were from last night. Now, what are the barriers to really believing that? What are the barriers to embracing this in our life? What are the things that have kept us or keep us still from really living that way? I think one of them, and I shared a little bit of my story last night, that, um, there's a piece of apple there. Um, I shared part of my story last night, it's an intellectual one. A pride of arrogance, really, of the academic world that says that there is no God, or that if God is real, that uh, He's not really present. And as I said earlier, we, we, that's revealed in the way that we pray. So there's an intellectual thing. And I think that sometimes we've also been exposed to people, to be really candid, we've been exposed to the cheesy people that seem to talk about God's presence all the time, and it turns us off, right? Well, I felt like God was saying this. You know, I woke up this morning and God said this. And, 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 and if we're not comfortable or familiar with that, that turns us off, right? Come to the South sometime, and, and, and there are tons of ministers and ministries and people that use that language all the time. And you wonder sometimes by the things that they are saying or the way that they're living, whether or not God actually said those things. And some of us are probably victims of this. How many of you have had that conversation? I really feel like God's telling me right now to be single. I really feel like God's telling me right now that I just need to focus on my relationship with Him and not with you. <laughs> Have you heard that one? Now, I've, I've said this before to our students and I've had students come up to me and said, Hey man, uh, look, uh, what if God really said that? And I said, are you pretty sure about that? Because sometimes in my office a few months earlier, you were pretty sure that God was telling you to date this person. So which one is it? So what I'm saying is this. Let's not be too glib about how we throw his name around about what he says and what he doesn't say. And use him as an excuse for our own fickleness. Is that a word? F-I-C-K-L-E-N-E-S-S. Fickleness. (laughs) I think also, um, you know, the people that are, you you know, maybe cheesy about 
about God's presence. There's also, we've encountered people that are, and throughout church history and throughout the church universal, it seems that the people who hear directly from God are always pushed to the margins. Look at the prophets, pushed to the margins. John the Baptist, pushed to the margin. And we have a hard time sometimes believing those uh, those people that might be on the margins and are saying things that they that God might be saying to them. And the best example um, that I can think of, and this is a little bit of an older movie, but I'm thinking that most of you have seen it, Braveheart. Okay, Braveheart, the Irish guy, right? The Irish guy that will be in the middle of a sentence and all of a, goes, all of a sudden he goes, yes, father. Okay, I'll tell him. Okay, he's pushed to the margins because he seems crazy, right? And he's portrayed that way in the movie. I'm not saying that we should, you know, be like that guy. But but that's the image that I always have in my mind of somebody who hears from God. He's kind of portrayed as this quirky guy that, that um, hears from God and will all of a sudden interrupt normal conversation with prayer. If you remember part of that movie, that guy saves William Wallace's life at one critical juncture. But that's the image, I think, that sometimes we have when we think about people that are earnestly trying to hear the voice of God and might even say something along those lines, is that they are pushed to the margins. So there's a lot of barriers for us to embrace this truth that God is real and God's God's presence is a reality in our life. Like Newbinging said last night, that the, the reign of God is confronting you as a present reality. It's confronting you as a present reality. And your job is to determine, well, what are you going to do with that truth? What are you going to do with that reality? But here's the biggest one. This is what I think the biggest obstacle is to recognizing or believing that God is with us. And it's pain. It's pain. It could be physical, emotional, spiritual, mental. Any one of those things makes it extremely difficult for us to recognize the presence of God. This past summer, I almost lost my uh, middle finger on my right hand when I was uh, using a circular saw. And uh, um, you can't even tell, really, now, unless you came up close, and, and uh, that anything happened. But you can believe that when when... Part of my finger was kind of dangling off and I was home by myself and I called my wife on the phone and I said, I think you need to come home. Um, and she called 911, the ambulance, and it's kind of embarrassing. My first ambulance ride is for a f- finger, you know, like cut on my finger. But anyway, you wish it was a little bit more dramatic than that. But I was praying. You know, we pray in the pain. But I can honestly tell you <laughs> that... Um, that I had a hard time recognizing God's presence in the midst of it. I was praying really hard for the pain to go away. Um, any of you that have ever had anything like that happen to a finger or a toe know, and those of you that are biology or anatomy ma- majors know that your, it's your fingers, your nose, and your toes that have the most, you know, and, it, and the pain was absolutely unreal for me. And it's extremely hard to recognize God's presence in the midst of that. Even when they pumped the morphine in and all that kind of stuff in the ambulance, the, the uh, paramedic was saying, how are you feeling? I'm like, uh, still hurts <laughs> a lot. It wasn't until they got me to the emergency room and they did this. This is amazing to me that they figured out how to put this thing in that blocks just the nerves to your hand. And then they started sewing up the finger and I didn't feel a thing. 
but everything else I could feel. That's just amazing how um, people have come to understand the way that God has made our bodies in order to do that. It was that guy was my favorite guy in the world. <laughs> but pain pain makes it hard for us to see and recognize the presence of God in our lives. And we're going to look at a passage of scripture. And I'm going to read it for you if you don't have your Bible, so it's fine. But if you want to turn to it now, it's John chapter 11. And uh, right before this, just to set up the context a little bit, Jesus' life has just been threatened by the religious leaders of the day. He has made an audacious claim that he and the Father are one. When he makes that statement, that he and God are one, and in essence that he is God, it says in John chapter 10 that they took stones to throw at him. Okay, These aren't like little pebbles of gravel that they would have picked up. I mean, to stone somebody, they would have picked up some rocks that would have tried to kill him. But he slips away from the crowd and he escapes. So have that in your mind as I read some of this because it ties into what one of the responses was of the disciples. So I'm going to go ahead and read uh, John chapter 11, verse 1, and it says, Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sister sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. And all that is is just a little bit of background to bring us into this relationship. That Jesus has a relationship with this family, Mary and Martha and Lazarus, their brother, and there's a prior relationship there. And so Mary and Martha send word to Jesus where he is, Lazarus is sick. Now, when he heard this, Jesus said, The sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. I'm going to stop there just for a second. In uh, two days before Christmas in 1999, I was here in Seattle with my wife, and we were celebrating Christmas at my mom's house, and we were pregnant with our first child. We were about nine weeks along. The doctor's appointment that, that um, we had right before we came, we heard the heartbeat. We were excited about having this child. And we were, you know, we were celebrating Christmas with my mom and my family. And, and it was an awesome day. And my wife woke me up early on December 23rd with tears in her eyes and said, David, I'm bleeding. And instantly we knew that something had gone wrong. Something was wrong. And we quickly put on clothes and told my mom. She told us which hospital to race to. And as I was driving, we were praying in the car. And I had not read this passage. I don't know when. but And I couldn't have even told you, but all of a sudden these words came into my head. The sickness will not end in death. And I shared that with Kelsey as a great hope. The sickness will not end in death. And I held on to that. I didn't even know where it was in the Bible, but I knew I had read it somewhere. The sickness will not end in death. We get to the hospital, they do the sonogram, and there is no heartbeat. And we lost our baby that day. And it entered into Kelsey and me the hardest season for us in our married lives. It's the hardest thing that we've ever gone through as a couple. 
It's not like we fought or anything like that. I'm not saying that. It's, it's just that you both want something that's good. It's not bad to want to be parents. And we struggled with God to know why in the world, when you want something good like a child, what's wrong with that? Was there something wrong with that? And I also was extremely confused as to why that verse popped into my head. And I really wrestled with God and said, God, the Scripture said the sickness will not end in death. And yet, we went through this traumatic thing of realizing first that the, the, the child had died. And I'll tell you, um, we had this obnoxious, arrogant doctor that for years I've wanted to write a letter to. Because it was evident to us that he did not share the same view of the sacredness of life that we did. Because he sat us down and he kind of went, well, sorry, um, but hey, was this your you know, first time trying to get pregnant? And we said, yes. And he goes, well, good job. I'm not kidding. And we kind of looked at each other and, and, and it made it worse that this guy was the doctor. And for those of you that have ever heard about what happens, I mean, it's, a, it's an extremely difficult thing for a woman to go through. Extremely difficult. And for many months, Kelsey and I wondered what this whole season of pain was about. It wasn't until we were at a conference several months later and there was a Christian speaker talking about the doctrine of the resurrection and the reality, the truth, that Jesus raises things from the dead because He Himself was raised from the dead. That it finally hit home for us. It didn't, by the way, make it all better. Some of you may be wondering, having seen the pictures last night, well, it's, it turned out okay because you got three kids. Yes, but C.S. Lewis has this quote that he says that when you lose something, when you go through this kind of grief, you learn to walk again, but you walk with a limp. We never forget December 23rd and that first experience for us as a couple. And I need to let you know, I know a lot of you aren't in this stage of life, but in a few years, when you get married, this happens more than you think. And there are hundreds of thousands of people that are dealing with the pain of wanting a child and not being able to, of getting pregnant and losing. You just need to know. Don't feel like you've got to figure it out or know what to say or any of that kind of stuff. Just know. Store this away somewhere. That this is one of the most painful things that a couple can ever go through. So, when we heard this couple, this speaker, talk about this doctrine, that's where things like this, this retreat, speaking, sermons, all that kind of stuff, that's where those ideas finally met our reality. And we understood that when you stand up and you say that we believe that Jesus Christ was raised on the third day, that actually makes a difference. That has an impact. And I can't say that it got all better after that, but we had hope for that child. Even if it was just nine weeks old, we had hope again. 
and we realize that God is good. So, where was I? Um, 11, chapter 11, verse 5. said, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Yet, when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. That's an extremely hard verse. Any of you that have ever walked through something painful in your life, when you call out for help, you want it quickly. I would have been very upset if the ambulance took its time on the way up Signal Mountain when I, my finger was hurt. Whatever pain that you are going through, you want to get out of it quickly. And I'm not going to lie to you, I'm going to shoot straight with you that sometimes the hardest part about following after God is that He does things on His timetable. And there is sometimes, there is sometimes a difficult period of waiting two more days for Jesus to come. There's not purposelessness in this, as we'll see in this passage. But this is one of the hardest things, I think, about following God. Is that when we are in pain, sometimes when we call out, it's two more days. It's two more days. It says, then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. And then they chime in and say, but Rabbi, teacher, they said a short while ago, the Jews tried to stone you. And yet you are going back there? You need to read something into this, by the way, and we'll get to how I'm pretty sure that this is the the essence of their question. They're not so concerned about Jesus in this. They're concerned about themselves. They know that when they travel with Jesus and the disciples of of a master travel somewhere and their master's about to get killed, that they're next on the list. And that's what helps make sense of this next verse. Because this next verse kind of comes out of nowhere. So listen to this. Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours of daylight? A man who walks by day will not stumble, for he sees by this world's light. It is when he walks by night that he stumbles, for he has no light. What? What is this about? If I could unpack this for a moment... This is one of those verses, by the way, that it's really tempting to run by and get to the rest of the story. But here's my, here's why I've wrestled with a little bit with this verse, and this is not the essence of the talk, but here's why I think that we should pay attention to the words in red if your Bible does that. If I were to ask you who the most brilliant people have been in history, who would you say? Brilliant people. Einstein. Einstein's always mentioned. Yes, absolutely. Who else? Newton. Other brilliant, brilliant minds of our time. Hitler? Yes. I I agree with you. Haven't heard that one before, so I'm a little bit shaken. Brilliant. Misguided. That's an understatement. Other brilliant minds. Da Vinci, Shakespeare, Plato, Galileo. Okay, whole bunch. Nobody said Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Except the staff people in the back are trying to get points. 
Nobody says ever, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Why is that? Why is that? Why don't we ever put him in the brilliant category? I was talking to... um, Oh, Rachel mentioned it. So, Rachel, I'm just going to... She's got three tests this coming week in organic chemistry, biology, and political science. Okay? And, Rachel, are you going to ask Jesus for help with any of those? Excellent answer. It sounds funny to us, right? What does Jesus have to do with organic chemistry, biology, or political science? Well, if we really believe what the Bible says is true, all things were made by Him, all things come through Him, He created all things. He is the one that sets up kings and kingdoms. No matter what your subject matter is, he knows about it. Yet we never turn to him, very rarely, unless we just haven't studied and then we get to class and find out there's a test. We never actually ask him to help us grasp these subjects. It reveals that we don't really think he's that smart. But he is. Let me give you an example. All of those people that were mentioned earlier were absolutely brilliant. Physics, chemistry, Nobel Peace Prize winners, leaders throughout history, all those kind of things. They, they were brilliant. But what do you think is the most difficult subject matter to teach on with accuracy? Love? Yes, but I would argue people are. Look at Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. He addresses anger, lust, lying, relationships, what it means to be false in your witness and religion. He knows exactly the problems that have plagued history and humankind all the way from the beginning till now. Tell me, a, tell me some issue that's confronting our world that Jesus doesn't know about and have something to do with those the wars that we face when he talks about anger the sexual problems of our culture when he talks about lust my argument is Jesus is the most brilliant person that have ever has ever walked this earth and yes he is the son of god so when he throws in a verse like this one Are there not 12 hours of daylight? We need to wrestle with it and pay attention. After he had said this, he went on to tell them. You can almost see him going, they're not getting this. Let me just tell you what we're going to do. What I think he's saying is, listen, don't worry. You're walking with me. I'm the light. Until the light goes away, you have nothing to fear. He knew that there would be a time that he would have to leave them an earthly presence and that difficult things would happen to them. But he's saying to them, don't be afraid. We are now in the light, so nothing will happen. And then he goes on to tell them, Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. Now this next statement by the disciples kind of reveal that that they didn't necessarily think that Jesus had it all together either. 
Because they say, well, Jesus might not know this, but if he sleeps, he's going to get better. That's kind of how it works. Can you imagine how Jesus had to have incredible patience to listen to some of these comments from the disciples? Oh, that's how I made you. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for the pointer. Thanks for the pointer. Sleep brings healing. Okay. Thanks. Jesus had been speaking of his death, it says, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. Here's some encouraging news. Even the people that walked with him daily didn't get him all the time. Didn't get exactly what he said. But they preserved a lot of these and they understood it later. And so too shall we, as we hear the words of our Lord, sometimes wrestle with what he says. But then understand it later. So then he told them plainly, look. That was my addition, but look, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe. Let us go to him. Again, this is the hard part of the way that Jesus sometimes works. He said that there is something more important than Lazarus' death here at work. He said he was glad he was not there. So as that he could reveal who he was in his fullness to them. We are not often comfortable with that Jesus. We want the Jesus to fix things now. We don't want to think that it might be better for there to be a season of waiting patiently until the pain is healed. Thomas, we don't get often... A comment from Thomas. This sounds something more like that Peter would say, but this is Thomas, called Didymus, the twin, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go so that we may die with him. you got to hear it like that. Thomas, think about Peter, how he's always like, oh, come on, let's go, I'll die with you. Thomas is doing the same thing. They miss what Jesus was trying to say. They miss, they thought Jesus was saying, wait a minute, Okay, if we go back to Judea where they were just going to stone you, then we're all going to die. See, they were concerned about themselves. But Thomas thinks, okay, if Jesus is going, I guess we're in it too. And Thomas kind of does the thing that, that a brave heart kind of mentality of let's step up and let's go die. Let's do this thing and we'll get the glory for it. Thomas misses it and we miss it a lot too. And here's a warning for all of us. If we ever get into that kind of thinking, ever get into that kind of thinking that that Jesus is impressed with our dedication, that Jesus is going to give us glory by following Him, it just doesn't work that way. But here's the thing that, 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 that I got out of this passage, is that Jesus is willing to go into the places where death is. There was the death of Lazarus and there was death that could await him because of the region he was going back into. Jesus is willing to go into the places where death is. And how does that hit home for us? Jesus does not simply exist in Bible camps like this. Jesus does not simply exist when you have your quiet time or at church or at the inn or whatever the name of your ministry is. He does not simply exist... When you're in a context like this, 
He is willing to go into the places of death. Let me give you an example. I think a universal phenomenon or a universal thing that we may see on a college campus on any given, say, Saturday morning is the so-called walk of shame. It's still called that, isn't it? You know what it is. Perhaps somebody has had a little too much to drink Friday night because they earned it. They had a tough week. They had three tests. Whatever it was. I'm not saying anything. You're going to do that. <laughs> You're just there. You're right there. So, But she's going to sit in the back the rest of the weekend. Um, you had too much to drink. And um, you end up getting together with somebody whose name maybe you don't remember. And if you haven't experienced that, then you've probably seen it or one of your friends has, right? The walk of shame. And that you walk back to your dorm room or your apartment, fraternity, sorority house, whatever, with the clothes that you wore on Friday night. It's the walk of shame. I want to imagine with you, most of us probably do this as we're making that walk, wondering what we say to our small group leader or Ryan Church and the staff of the inn about our, when they ask us how we had, how was our weekend. And we think that's about the only time that we might put God into that scenario. But, but, and we think in that walk that God wants nothing to do with us, right? Because of what we've done or what our friend has done. Why don't you imagine this? If it is true that Jesus goes with us into the places of darkness and death, when you roll over that morning in that foreign bed on Saturday morning, He's sitting right there. And as I imagine Him, He probably looks at you and says, You're up. You ready to go home? And He walks with you. How does that walk change when he walks like that? Now, I know what some of you might be thinking. David, that is your idea, maybe, of Jesus. There's no way that he sits in that chair in that dorm room or that apartment. Because we are told not to do those kind of things. I think I can prove it to you. John chapter 8. It's a story about a woman who is caught in the act of adultery. And the religious leaders take her and they throw her in front of Jesus and they say, Jesus, the law commands us to stone such women. What do you say? And if you know this story, Jesus says, let the one who is without sin cast the first stone. And the scripture says that that one by one the people begin to walk away, the oldest ones first, until, until, It's just Jesus and the woman. Jesus and the woman alone. And then he says these words. Has no one condemned you? And neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. But it takes the woman being in a place of being alone with Jesus to hear those words. 
And if we think that whatever shameful thing that we have done, that Jesus completely has removed Himself from us, we are believing a lie. There is no place that we can go apart from His presence. That is a scary thought. But if we know Him as that God, then it becomes an amazingly beautiful thought. It does not give us a license to sin because His words are go and sin no more. But we are invited to come to a place of aloneness with Him to hear those words. I know I'm running out of time and I'm sorry, but it says that 11.17, it says, On His arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem. And many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you Whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. You see, this is where a lot of us live. When I told that story earlier about Kelsey and me, is that in our heads, we knew that there is a resurrection that's coming. And yet we still long for The same thing that, Jesus, if you had been here, then all this wouldn't have happened. We want Him to take care of all this. And we know that if He was here with us, then these bad things wouldn't have happened. The challenging part of this morning, the good news is that He's here, and there is presence here. The bad news is is it doesn't guarantee us a pain-free life. It does not guarantee us a pain-free life. But in the midst of that pain, He does not leave. In fact, we may see Him more clearly than we ever have before. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in Me will live even though He dies. And whoever lives and believes in Me will never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Do you believe this? I don't know how many of you have seen this DVD curriculum called The Truth Project. There's this question that the professor, Del Tackett, asks that I'm totally going to rip off. He says, do you really believe that what you believe is really real? Do you really believe that what you believe is really real? Because if you do, then it changes everything. What you say that you believe, do you really believe it? And what you really believe that it's really real. It's not just a spiritual reality but it affects the way that you live here and now. 
Let me finish this. She says, yes, Lord, she told him, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who was to come into the world. And after she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house, comforting her, noticed how quickly she got up and went out. They followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, what? If you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. And the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind kept this man from dying? It says, Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. Now hear this question of, or the statement of Martha, again reveals how when Jesus tells us something, sometimes we think he doesn't know what he's talking about. Because she says, but Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there four days. And Jesus said, did I not tell you? That if you believed, you would see the glory of God. So they took away the stone. And Jesus looked up and said, and imagine, a guy in Braveheart all of a sudden launches into a seamless relationship with the Father. And says, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Now, this is a bit of an abrupt shift. But for us to recognize the presence and power of our Lord. We need to do a couple of things. We need to see that there are barriers to us recognizing the presence and power of God. And we mentioned some of those. Intellectual pride, arrogance of our own, sometimes this belief that there is a spiritual material divide and that Jesus is only concerned with Sunday morning and nothing else. There are many barriers, and pain is a huge one. We think that if we are experiencing pain, we have done something wrong, we've lost favor with God, and this is just not true. So that is one thing. The other thing is is that we need to have the grave clothes removed. The things that are dead in our life need to be removed from us. And on this retreat, on this retreat, is an amazing opportunity for you to explore a couple of things. A couple of things that will help, I think, us all 
experience what it means to be loved by God in this way. Let me set this up with one thing. Two years ago, I had a, a chance to go and study with a man named Dallas Willard, who is a professor of philosophy at the University of Southern California. He's also an author and writer, and he's one of my favorites. And if you heard my story last night, a Christian philosopher who very deeply loves God has played a huge role in my life because my father was a philosopher who did not believe. And I had this chance to... we lived for two weeks, about 25 of us pastors from around the world lived in a Catholic monastery for two weeks. We ate, we slept, and we listened to Dallas Willard for seven hours a day. And in in the midst of this class, he said so many things. (laughs) Said so many things. But one of the things that I rediscovered from him, his teaching, was this essence of that the kingdom of God is amongst us. It's here. It's present. It's real. But I was left with the question that probably a lot of you are, well, then, then how do we access that? How do we realize that? And I had a chance to have a... He had a one-on-one conversation with each of us in the, in the two weeks there, and I remember asking him... I kind of had the, uh, the idol worship thing a little bit, though. You know, if you ever meet somebody that you really respect and are famous, and this might date me a little bit, but, you know, Saturday Night Live, Chris Farley, when he's in the elevator with, uh, you know, whatever rock star it is, and he's going, you know, that like that one song? That was so awesome. <laughs> I kind of felt like that when I was sitting with him. I'm like, you know that one book you wrote? <laughs> that was so awesome. <laughs> but I restrained myself. But anyway, I just, at one point I said, you know, and this is weird, but I was like, uh, Dallas, because he said, call me Dallas. He's like 70 years old, you know. So, D- Dallas, how did you come to this realization that this was the essence of Jesus' teaching? And, and you know, what has it done for you? And he looked at me in the eye and he said, David, this realization saved my life. And it wasn't, he's not someone that's prone to overstatement. He said, it saved my life. And over the course of those two weeks, we were required to sleep 10 hours a night, required to sleep 10 hours a night. One part of the class involved a weekend of silence and solitude. And that's what I want to explore with you today. You see, one of the things that I have discovered, even in ministry, is that I suck at silence and solitude. And yet these are disciplines that throughout the centuries have helped people discover who they are in the eyes of God. And I know that for some of you, if you hear the word discipline, you immediately think, is David preaching legalism? Is David preaching that you were saved by these works? No. I'm just telling you that over the centuries, people have figured out that these disciplines help promote a reception to God's grace in our lives. There are barriers all around us to receiving God's love. And sometimes we must strip them away. Just like the woman who was caught in adultery had to be face to face with Jesus with everybody else gone before she could hear those words. So too we need to remove everybody else for a moment and just be with Him. If you're like the students that I pastor in Tennessee, I know that one of the first things you do when you walk out of class is what? 
check your phone, right? You text, you probably do it in class, right? Let's be honest. You check your Facebook. These things are not bad. I'm not, I don't want to sound like the old guy, like, oh, anti-technology. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is look at your life. Change your mind about some things. Do you need to be that connected all the time? Do you ever get to the point where you want to turn the phone off because it keeps ringing? Or there's a text and you just want the thing to end? And Do you ever get to that point? I wonder, I, I, I do. I live in a chaotic world, okay? I am an introvert by nature. I'm with people all the time. I go home and there's three kids dressed up as superheroes that want to take my head off. They want to wrestle with dad the instant I walk in. I cannot do this. I cannot do this apart from God's grace. Okay? And let me define grace the way that Dallas defined it for us. We often hear grace is about, oh, it's about forgiveness of sins and what happened on the cross and the resurrection. Yes, it is that. But if you were to do a study of the word grace in Scripture, you're confronted with Scriptures that say things like, grow in grace. How are you supposed to do that? Unless there's a different definition of grace. Willard's definition of grace is this. Grace is God acting in your life to do the thing that you cannot do on your own. Grace is God acting in your life to do the thing that you cannot do on your own. If you look through the Sermon on the Mount, you can't just not be angry, lustful, uh, a liar and a cheat and all those kind of things by sheer willpower. But grace is that thing which enables you to do that. Now, how do we learn and grow in that grace? Let me suggest one way. Get away Get quiet, even this weekend. And here's one of the barriers I'll tell you right now. You're going to get away, and you're going to want to read something. That's fine. But one of the things that Willard told us, he said, oh, by, by the way, for those of you that get away on the silent retreat and you take all your books with you, don't do that. Because he challenged us to say, who are you? When you don't listen to any other voices. And the things you read are voices. Okay? Who are you when it's just you and God? One of the barriers that some of you will wonder is like, here's this group of 200 people, and if we throw them all out on, the, on this lakeside here, one on one, and they're just by themselves, some of you are going to wonder, am I missing something? Isn't there, there's probably some group somewhere doing something really fun, and I'm missing that. Right? You do this back at home too, right? It's Friday night. You haven't gotten a text or a phone call. You know that everybody's doing something and you're missing it, right? Maybe. But what I think you might be missing is really engaging with God. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with your friends or community. There isn't. God gives us those things as gifts. But if we use them as an excuse to never get with Him, then we're missing Him. One of the things that you'll discover, as I did, on this little retreat thing that that you made us do, is you'll sleep. 
you'll get away in your room. And you'll be like, all right, I'm going to sit here. I'm going to pray. I'm going to meditate on all these things. Sounds really cool. And you'll fall asleep. That's okay. It means you're tired. So, take a nap. All the people that have programmed this retreat now are going, what is he saying? This is going to eliminate all this stuff. Everybody's going to go and they're not going to come out until like 3 in the afternoon. That's fine. That's fine. I fly out to Tennessee in a few days. You know, whatever. So, take a nap and sleep. Some of you live your lives like you've got to control everything and get everything done. And it might be nice for a while for you to shut your eyes and sh- shut your eyes and go to sleep. And then wake up, find somewhere, and have an honest conversation with God. Take your Bible, that's fine. But don't dissect it for your small group the next day. I have an article that in back, and I kind of wrestled with whether to hand it out or not, but some of you might be familiar with the discipline of Lectio Divina. It means just it's a spiritual reading. This is a hard one for me because I make my living looking at these passages and crafting messages out of them. It's extremely hard for me to read the Bible now. It's one of the perils of my job to read the Bible now and not come up with, oh, this, this could be a good one. This could be a great series. Okay, I hate that about my job. I'm honest. But what that discipline makes me do is sit and listen to this. And so I see things like Jesus asking the sisters, do you believe this? And I hear them asking me, hear him asking me. If you haven't done that with these words in a while, you need to. So there's an article in back and there's also, I almost never do this, but... Um, a little sheet of paper that back there says name and email. And if you want to put your name in the email now, I wrote a paper on this for the class. It was part of my deal. And um, um, on all of the things that this idea that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, what that meant for me in my life. I submitted it to Dallas Willard and he actually gave me an A+. Plus. So um, I was a little proud of that. And, um, you know, I'm not a speaker that's written any books or have a DVD table in the back or anything like that. But um, he tells me, he told me that I should publish this. So, it's 25 pages long. It's not long. But I didn't copy off a whole bunch and go, here's my book, you know, or anything like that. But if you're interested, um, I have given it to some of my friends and they said it has helped them um, change some of their perspective. And you'll learn some things about how that very practically and tangibly. It's not a theological thing at all. It's a reflection on what those two weeks did for me. So let me finish this up. I know I've been all over the place and I'm probably long. I didn't bring my watch up here with me or whatever. So if you do this silence and solitude in your life, and if you you don't do it this weekend because you want to catch up with people and, and connect, that's fine. But would you put it on a calendar, if you keep a calendar, turn off your phone, not bring a computer, go out somewhere. And one of the things that I discovered in this silent thing, a lot of people, a lot of my students ask me when I've talked on this with them, what what happened? And we're so like production oriented. What, what, What happened in that time? 
And all I can say is this. I walked away with an unshakable confidence that I am loved by God. That's it. That's it. I walked away with an unshakable confidence that I am loved by God. And you know what? That's enough. It's more than enough. And it encouraged me to seek those times out again because I miss hearing His voice. And I recognize that every time I try to get away, I've got this laundry list of things that I pour out and I, I go through the same things that you do. i got to do this, i got to do that. I pour all that out to Him. He knows. He might even be able to help you with organic chemistry or biology. Political science. But seek that time out. Get away for a while. And discover who it is that made you. Discover again who it is who loves you. And discover again who is right here with you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I feel like there was a lot there and um, only You can make the unclear clear. I pray for those that are tired and may even be asleep even as I pray this, that You would give them rest this weekend that they would take seriously your call to get away for a while. To hear your voice that we are not condemned. We have been forgiven. The grave cloths have been removed. And we have been set free to live again. Would you be patient with us as we try on these practices of growing in your grace? But would you give us enough of a glimpse of intimacy with you that we long for quiet times again and again? Would you unshackle us from the bad habits that we have of trying to earn your favor by reading or by praying a certain thing or... Would you set us free to be who you have made us to be? Set us free from imitating others and recognize that we are fearfully and wonderfully made in your sight. And Lord, please speak to us so that we know that it is your voice that drowns out all the others. And may we hear you say that we are deeply loved. We pray this in your name. Amen.